Well, good afternoon, everyone. Pop that there, and we'll make a start. I do want to uh, welcome you all today again, and um, we have a few visitors in town. It's uh, good to see the mobsies over there, uh, Rick and Linda. Good to see them again, and also uh, we have Mike and Jack Howells. That's uh, Ashley's dad and brother there down there. I can see the family resemblance, the Howell family. And, uh, and also we've got James and Joshua Thomas there up from London, I think. There they are. Thank you very much. Is anybody else? I'm very sorry if you're not on the list. <laughs> we have to learn to live with disappointment occasionally. There's a green brolly down there. If anyone lost it, it was found in the toilet. So I think it was in there drying off. So that's been rescued. So if it belongs to you, there it is. And um, also, I, just, I do want to thank Mwamba for what I thought was a really uh, moving testimony. And um, Mwamba's, I mean, we're blessed. She's part of our family group, you know. And you would never know that she has problems. She comes in every week with a big smile. She, she serves. She does IT stuff for us. She sings. You know, I've coached her, you know, she's come along. <laughs> she's improved a lot. But, um, hey, one day I'll surprise you all. One day. But, um, but she's just such a joy in our family group, you know, and, she, and you, would, you wouldn't know. That, I know when she chats with the women, I'm sure it's a bit different, but she's just such a great inspiration to all of us. We're so pleased to have her in, in our group. But it's funny, this message today, um, I wrote this message some months ago, really, and um, I called it Change. What a week. I don't want to get into politics too much, but what a week it has been. I mean, when the, the Prime Minister resigns and it's relegated to page three... You know it's been a big week. And uh, Sybil said something to me, she said, you know, she said, politics divides, but Jesus unifies. And I thought, that's very true, you know. And we're going, well, we're going to be going through enormous changes, probably, as regards the political spectrum and where we, you know, Tam's already talking about Scotland, you know, you know building that Adrian's Wall again, going to rebuild it. And where are <laughs> Breeze blocks... You know, and, and, we're, and they're all they're, they want to stay in Europe, and uh, Northern Ireland want to stay in Europe, and Wales, Wales doesn't, and you know, it's just been great. London wants to stay in Europe. We're going to need a passport to go to London. You know that, don't you? You know, they, you have to get one of those. It'll have the, the EU symbol on just to get a Tottenham. <laughs> Things are changing. And um, let me ask you a question. Who likes change? Look at me. See? My wife. <laughs> I don't like change. We are so opposite. They say opposite poles attract. I know one or two people put their hands up. Most people kind of like, I don't mind a bit of change, but not too much, and not too big, and not too sudden. And I think for myself, I think I, you know, I come from, 
I come from a, a, a quite a dysfunctional background. My childhood, when I went through a lot of changes, sort of in my early years and my early teens. Um, this would have been in the um, mid '60s, and uh, I know it's hard to believe, but <laughs> I know I say it every time. But I was around in the '60s. I was a child of the '60s almost. But, you know, it was quite chaotic in my life. My parents divorced when I was quite young. And then my first two years of senior school, I went to four different senior schools in two years until I actually moved to Birmingham. I was in, uh, my first senior school was in Hertfordshire, a place called Hitchin, a little, little town down there. Then we moved to Manchester and I went to school there. Then I moved to Doncaster and I went to school there, which was where I came from originally. And then I came to Birmingham. And I hated the change. I was always the kid with a funny accent. You know, because you know what kids are like. When they, when they move somewhere, within a day, they've picked up the accent. You know, it's like, you know, I, I moved from Yorkshire to Hertfordshire, and within a week I'm like, talk like that, me old mate. You know what I mean? It's like, because kids do. They wanna, the kids want to fit. They, they want to they, they be like everybody else. You know, the last thing you want when your kids to stand out. That's the last thing you need. And so I was always the kid who was the new kid. And, and, and I hated it, and, and it was kind of those, um, thinking about, um, how is it going to affect me? Is it, going to, is it going to be ultimately for good or for bad? And, you know, in the Bible there are examples of people who had to deal with change. And what I, what I wanted to do was, uh, two sort of, two stories, two people. One's Old Testament, and one's in the New Testament. And um, they both, uh, I find them very inspiring. If you'll turn with me, uh, first of all, to the book of Genesis. Genesis 37. We'll begin in verse 2. And this is about Joseph. To say he had one or two changes in his life is a bit of an understatement. But he says, it's a read here. From verse 2. This is, the, uh, this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of uh, Bila and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. He, he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field. When suddenly, my sheaf rose and stood upright. While your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down. Wow. Nothing like doing yourself a bit of harm. You know, it was, um, I think, sort of the, uh, the impetuance and the arrogance of youth. I think most of us, well, those, some are still in our teens, and uh, as I said, I once was in my teens. And you can go through a phase where you do have that kind of arrogance. You know, when I was about 18, some may remember this, 1970. And I decided that I was going to... Play football for Brazil. <laughs> As they had the 
greatest football team in the world. The only problem was, I wasn't that great at football, and I wasn't exactly Brazilian. But I remember watching the 1970 World Cup, and anybody remember, Jeff does, anyone else remember the night? You must have been two. Anyway, they are probably recognised as the greatest team that there's ever been. And I wanted to play football for Brazil. I had it all in my mind, you know, Pele to Revelino, Revelino to Jarzino, passes it through to Rogério. <laughs> Who scores? And that was just me in the back garden, convinced I had all the skill, silky skills needed. But he had a bit of that going for him. You know, and he had that arrogance and sometimes pride of youth. But just go forward to je- into chapter 41. And in verse 41. And we're going to turn there in a few moments. But what I want to do is talk a little about, about Joseph. Because he went through this, and in verse, and, and, and it reads earlier on, when Joseph had opportunities, and he definitely saw God's hand moving in his life. And what happened with Joseph was, I know that the, the, most of you maybe know the story, his brothers detested him. Mainly because he was dad's favourite. He was, he was being spoiled. But not only that, he could be a bit obnoxious. He was basically telling them that he'd had these visions and he used to have these dreams. He could interpret dreams and he interpreted saying, I'm going to be great and you're all going to be basically my underlings. They decided that they were going to kill him. I, I won't read the whole thing because we're doing a New Testament character as well and I don't want us to be here till uh, 7 o'clock. So to cut a long story short, his brothers fake his death. And they're going to tell his parents, he's been eaten by wild animals, we're really sorry. Here's the clothes, covered in blood. They sold him into slavery. He was then bought by a guy called Potiphar, who put him in charge of his household. And he did great things. He ran the house, did all the things. But it also talks about him being quite a good-looking chap. And Potiphar's wife decided that she wanted to uh, have relations with him, which he refused to do. So she concocted a story that he'd tried to molest her and rape her, and he gets thrown into prison. While he's in prison, more dreams come on, and he's, been, he's known as an interpreter of dreams. And he interprets the, very, the dreams, he, said, he talks about there's going to be a famine, there's going to be seven years of famine, and there's going to be seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. And he, and he tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh kind of likes what he hears. And again, God just moves in this guy's life. I mean, when you think about it, thrown down a well and left for, you know, and then he's sold off into slavery. Most people, you're sold into slavery, you just think, that's it. And you do, you'd be making bricks or digging trenches. But this guy just... God works through just unbelievably smart and switched on and becomes 
indispensable to all these officials. To the point whereby, it says, I know you had your fingers there, in uh, verse 41 it said, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. This is Pharaoh. I mean, this isn't like the foreman on the building site. This is one of the most powerful men in the world. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Imagine that kind of power. Someone who's relatively young. And he's now running, pretty much running the Middle East. I mean, that's an incredible thing that he, that he does. And seeing God move in, this, in his life, just so inspiring. Because all through his challenges, he stayed faithful. All through the changes, he stayed solid. His belief in God and, and being righteous and trying to do the right thing. He did some bozo things, you know, like bragging off to the... It wasn't the smartest thing. But there are worse things in the world that you can do than say to your brothers, or you said, you know, I wish I had a pound for every time I big myself up in front of my brothers and sisters. You know, there, there are worse things, but when it came to the, the, the big things in life, such as Potiphar's wife, and resisting the temptation, it was so righteous in so many ways. And God really moved in his life. And the story moves on and on where eventually he's reconciled with his brothers and his family. And he just, you know, and you'd think he would want revenge. And again, he does the righteous thing. When his brothers come to see him, you know, he ends up kissing them and greeting them, saying, you're fine, we're going to look after you. We've got plenty of food. It's such a moving story. Even his father, who's all ancient, you know, by now, it's, it's so touching. And all because he did what was right. And I think he also appreciated what God did for him. And I think for me, even in my life, just changing really, you know, I've shared a few times. I I never came from a a faithful background or even a believing background. I was, you know, trainee pagan, really. And um, and the, the older I get and I look back, the clearer it becomes how God moved in my life. You know, when I'm a, a, a disciple for just a couple of years or so, I don't think I really saw it so clearly. But the older I get, the more clear it becomes. It's one of the few things that actually does become clearer. Most things are getting much, much foggier as I'm getting older, like what I did yesterday and where I put my glasses and where my car keys are. But that gets clearer every, every day, really. Because, you know, me, me meeting Sybil and then the chances of Sybil's sister being met in, in the London church and then her other sister being met and then coming to Birmingham and, and her sister talking to me and seeing such a transformation and me deciding and then Sybil saying, why don't you come to church? And me thinking, no thanks, you go to church. Tell me all about it, I'm sure it'll be great. You know, I've got things to do, TV's on, you know. And it's like, you know, and our lives are so different now. The friendships that we have, the security that we feel now, you know, the security with each other. You know, not feeling anxious that, you know, is this marriage going to work or is, is he going to cheat on me? Is she going to do this? We, that's gone. 
You know, it's funny because nowadays, you know, most nights were in bed well before 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. When you get to my age, you need your rest. Mm-hmm. Not to say beauty sleep. Mm-hmm. But you, 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 I need that rest. We say, many times we say, it's like 9.30. Oh, I'm, ex- oh, I'm shattered. We've got to get to bed. You know, I'm so tired. Mm-hmm. When we were young, pre-Christian days, 11 p.m., we were getting ready to go out. <laughs> I'd have a fag in one hand and a whiskey in the other hand. Sybil would be doing her hair, putting her makeup on. And I'd be there, the John Travolta look, white jacket. Thank you very much. Ready to go clubbing. We didn't go out till midnight. It was like, I know, I hope you're ashamed of yourself. She made me go. I didn't want to go. Forced me. I was forced. But I often think the worse your condition, the more God can do. I really believe that, you know. It's like, I, I think, boy, I was in such a mess. But then I read about Paul, I think, well, I wasn't that bad. I didn't murder Christians. You know, I didn't drag them out and put them in prison. But we can all compare. But I think the great thing is God always gives us hope. You know, and, um, and when you go through these times of change, you know, think about Joseph, the stuff that he went through. From being his, his father's favourite to his brothers despising him, sold, sold into slavery, did the right thing when he came to Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison, interpreted dreams, goes to work for Pharaoh, ends up running Egypt, then, then forgives his, bro- his brothers for what they did. What an incredible journey. And, the, and it would have been so easy to despair. You know, I must say, you know, this, I, d- I don't like change, I don't like uncertainty. I remember waking up on Friday morning after the vote feeling ooh, a bit anxious, you know, a bit fluttery. Wow, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know what's going to happen? Tomorrow the sun will rise. That's what's going to happen. And tomorrow God will be in his kingdom and he'll be there the day after as well. That's what's going to happen regardless of what goes on on this little planet that we have, in this little country that we have. It's going to carry on. And that's the great thing. I also want to talk to about one of my other heroes in the Bible, which was Peter. And in Luke 5, just turn there. Thank you. How am I doing? Oh, bags of time. Other than Brazil, I've not really mentioned football, have you noticed? I've been very diplomatic. Brazil aren't playing in the Euros, in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> They're bit, bit far no, they're a bit far away. Thank you. <laughs> Rogerio Spencer for my full title. But in um, come on, behave now. Behave yourselves. Luke five in verse one. It says one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, with the people crowding round him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from, from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for the catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. 
So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. I mean, that's such a great passage. You know, there is Simon, or Simon Peter, the fisherman being told what to do by a preacher, saying, let's go out again. Let's, let's, see, what, let's see what happens. Put your nets down again. And he gets this catch of fish. And it's funny, even at this point, you know, Peter, he must see something in Jesus, because he falls on his knees and says, don't come near me, I'm, I'm a sinner. He sort of knew his own condition. And I think that's no bad thing to see our condition. I think when James was talking about the communion as well, you know, to actually see that, you know, what it's going to take to change that condition. It's not just a few words, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's okay. That's all swept under the carpet. It took an incredible act for those sins to get cleansed and washed away. An act of love that we can't even imagine. Imagine sacrificing your own child for strangers and sinners. Difficult to comprehend. But I think later on, in Matthew 26... Starting in verse 69, I won't read it, but this is when Peter denies Jesus. He understands kind of that he's going to follow Jesus. He's going to become a fisher of men and he travelled with Jesus, best part of three years. Travelled around the country, watched Jesus perform miracles. He even, got to, he even managed to walk on water for a while. Lots of stuff went on. Lots of things happened. Lots of miraculous signs. And it, that, you know what, if I walked on water... I think my faith would be built somewhat. I'd be, I'd be, you know, I'd be like, wow, you know, this is new. This is, you, you, you'd think to yourself, this is, this is unbelievable. I might, it may have only been for a few paces before I started sinking, but just, just to do it, if I walked on water for two paces, I'd be impressed. And your faith would be like, who is this guy? Who is this man that can, that can do this? But in Matthew 26, it all, it all comes crashing down. Jesus gets arrested. And he's been beaten. And he's been interrogated. And Peter's there. And it's, this is all sort of happening a little distance away. And then people say, you're that guy who was with Jesus. And then Peter wavers. All that's forgotten. The walking on water... The raising of the dead, the miracles, because why? Because he's like us. And he got scared. And he 